The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Stock Take. My name is Gaurav Sodi. Joining me today is John Abbott. Good day, John. Morning, Gaurav. Looking very nice where you are. See you in Melbourne at the moment, aren't you? You haven't seen my bottom half. <laughs> I, I never want to see your bottom half. <laughs> that's, uh, let's hope that sentence is always stays true. Um, now, uh, we've also got um, Nick. G'day, Nick. Um, welcome. I think this is only your second, maybe your third podcast, and certainly your first using um, the, the video. So welcome aboard. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Gents, I thought wants, we first... Also, I want to make clear that that is not a fridge in the background yeah. of Nick's, it's not it's a, a beer fridge, right? It's a cabinet. <laughs> it's a filing cabinet. It, it does look a lot like a, a fridge, though. A beer fridge, yeah. A beer fridge, that's what I suspect. Yeah. I didn't want to say it, but that's what, that's what we all suspected. <laughs> He's getting ready for the Denmark game tomorrow, I think. Perks are working from home. <laughs> Taking over all that meetings now. It's, it's, I know nothing about that sport. I have zero interest in that game. I, I don't get it. John, everyone falls over all the time and pretends they're injured. It's a, such a, it's an embarrassing game to watch. I, I don't even like watching with my son because it's like, oh, why did they fall? Why this, did they this fall? This wasn't on the and running order. Doing? I don't, I don't remember <laughs> agreeing to discuss this. Yeah. To the, to I mean, you're right. The game. You're right. <laughs> yeah. That's why they're adding sort of 10 or 15 minutes to injury time because all the time wasting that goes on with people rolling around on the floor. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. seem to be working at the moment, though. <laughs> no, it's worse than ever. <laughs> But look, listen, let's um, let's move to another disaster um, that's probably worse than ever, and that is crypto. John, we don't talk about it very much in public, but privately, I think we've all been... <laughs> we've yeah, there's all been, a reason for that. Well, yeah, I and mean, we've all been scathing about it uh, privately, yeah. and I think somewhat, I think bamboozled by it is probably the right word. You've probably done more work than anyone in the team on, on crypto. What's your reaction? Which isn't saying much. Uh, <laughs> That's what we do, actually, yeah. All, hey, what's your reaction I, I think in, Well, in total, we've written one story on crypto uh, yeah. since this whole bubble blew up. Uh, so, well, inflated and then blew up. Um, and that was really just to explain the technology behind it. Yeah. Um, I drew a parallel with the dot-com bubble. In, in retrospect, I think that the... the this was probably a more obvious bubble than um, the dot-com bubble in our view. And that's why we didn't write about it because it did seem so obvious and it did seem a great way to lose a lot of money. Um, Despite the very we many requests we got. We got loads of requests for it. Absolutely loads. And you can see why, because lots of people were making a lot of money during mm. that time. Um, the story that I wrote was a result of me interviewing the son of a friend of mine who was at the time i think he was 20 and he had four four over 400 grand in the bank uh, which he'd made on crypto and was absolutely adamant that he wasn't really going to take any off the table he was in all wow. in and all the way uh and his cohort of friends which some of my sons were in the same cohort they all started trading the same thing. It just seemed to me like the most obvious bubble. I think the parallel with the dot-com bubble is correct in terms of the market psychology. I'm just not sure that the technology itself is as useful as what I first thought. 
and the the ASX experience with their chest replacement suggests that <laughs> you know maybe the real world uses aren't as great as we thought. Whereas in the dot com bubble, the real world uses were fairly obvious. It was obvious, I think, at the time that the internet was going to be a big thing. Um, whether crypto is going to be a big thing in the future, I, I still doubt, to be honest. Let's just let's just um, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's just stick with that comparison between crypto and the '99.com bubble. Mm. Um, I think I actually think that understates the extent of the crypto bubble. The um, the comparison I would use is with some of these historic bubbles that we all tulips. have read Biggest about. Bubble the, the, tulips, yeah, <laughs> tulips. Um, all these manias that people write books about. I think I think crypto deserves a chapter in one of those books. I think this is going to go down as one of the most stunning manias and widely accepted, deeply held manias of the last 100 years. It's it's um, incredible. I'm just I'm really proud that we had the uh, sense and maybe the foolishness to avoid it and to see it for what it was. And for me, that really comes down to reading a lot and recognizing what a mania looks like. Um, and mm. books like um, like a tulip mania and panics crashes and what's that called? Yeah, Pan- manias, panics and crashes. I think it's called. But the those, madness those, of crowds. Or is it? The madness the of crowds. All, to to if you have some sort of understanding of what's come before, it, I think you just make yourself less susceptible to um, to future mania. So this whole episode for me is an advertisement for wide reading. There's just um, it teaches you so much, and I'm I'm pleased because I'm quite susceptible to to manias. I mean, I. I Fifteen years ago, I, I'm convinced I would have been into in crypto. I'm convinced of it, and it was because mm. of um, of financial education, reading that uh, we saw this. We all saw this very early for what it was. Nick, can I get a quick reaction from you before John deep dives into why the tech is crap? Yeah, for me, it just <laughs> seems like it's just been yeah an awful lot of garbage from the start, but also just so many different fraudulent things along the way and everyone sort of dismisses that as you know oh that's just someone else and then you know yeah. there's another big one with ftx there was a quote a few years ago when bitcoin was really starting to to take off and uh the person on the news saying they were a trillionaire because they created a coin that had a trillion coins and they sold one to their friend for a dollar and, <laughs> and i think that sort of sums it all up for me it's just yeah that, that wasn't ftx was it no, it wasn't of someone else. <laughs> yeah. So if the if the actual, I mean, I think we all agree, and um, you know, I think most sensible people with an idea of history would agree that the coins themselves are a part of a mania. John, you've been more open minded about the underlying technology. Is that has this all this episode changed the way you're thinking about that? You sort of hinted that perhaps it has. Yeah, maybe. Um, uh, the idea is is that. And this is why I think it attracted so many libertarians and so many people who were kind of early 20s, young males who were kind of disenchanted with their financial prospects for their for their, their 20s and 30s. And the idea that you could have this kind of libertarian free range system where trust was not delivered by an independent third party, but was delivered systemically through clever programming, really. Um, and instead of having one source of truth, you have multiple sources of truth and you use those multiple sources of truth to verify transactions. It's quite an appealing idea to people who feel as though the system has failed them. I'm just not sure that 
I'm just not sure that that has real world commercial applications that are even widespread. There probably are some use cases. I think Dubai's got its land registry on on a blockchain. Um, maybe the Ethereum network, um, which seems to be quite useful with smart contracts, maybe that's got some commercial applications. It just doesn't seem that obvious to me. Um, and there are obviously problems with the energy consumption, like it's hugely energy intensive. And I think Ethereum have, have tried to work on that. Um, so they're doing proof of, instead of doing proof of work, they're doing proof of something else. I can't remember what the term is, but it's much, it's 90% less energy intensive. But even so, it seems like a lot of work just to avoid a central source of truth when central sources of truth have, have worked out quite well for society over the past few hundred years. They served us pretty well. Um, they fail every now and again, like all human systems fail, but generally they've done a pretty good job. Um, and I don't really see the need to sort of abandon those sources of truth. So, yeah, I, I doubt whether this technology is going to change the world in the way that the internet has changed the world. Maybe it will, but it, it seems a question that's open to doubt right now. I suppose we're about to see whether how much of the enthusiasm for crypto was built on the underlying technology and how much of it was more of a traditional financial bubble. You know, it's easy That's to be right. enthused when the coins are going up and you've made thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions mm. of dollars. Then it's mm. easy to say that the tech is valuable. But this is the real test. You know, I think we're about to find out, John. And I think it's it's right to be to raise questions and be more skeptical now. But we're about to find out if there is a real use case for these um, technologies, which which sound interesting. But like you, they're just beyond beyond me. Um, I, I don't quite get it, and I don't quite see the use case for it. Although plenty of people. Do Nick, where do you sit on that? Sorry, John, go ahead. You finish up. Well, just if you if you take say the original use case of Bitcoin is kind of a gold replacement, limited supply, a store of value, that Mm. all makes a lot of sense. But that hasn't worked in Bitcoin's case. It it hasn't worked. That's that's was a really good use case I thought for crypto, and it doesn't seem to have worked in this environment. That should be going up. Yeah, (laughs) but it's not. And so it's not just that emerges. A store of value yeah. needs to be stable as well. Stable. And the, the wild right. volatility of the price just, I think it renders it useless. It does. It does. And even the stable coins, which, you know, clever math behind them, they have failed. Mm. And, and I think the big tell in all of this is that some of the big, the big crypto players who are still in there are now calling for regulation. Yes, well, that's right. So the whole point of this was not yeah, to have regulators involved. You know, if we mm. if we we need regulators to make this work, why don't we just stick yeah. with the system that we've got? My my thoughts exactly. Yeah, Nick, anything to add? No, just that um, you know, a few of the large banks overseas and the ASX has just blown up a quarter of a billion dollars. I think trying to do <laughs> similar technology as John alluded to, but there are players trying to do stuff with this technology. So there, there might be something there, but as you said, as a medium of exchange, it's hard to see that you're going to go down and buy a coffee with Bitcoin. Yeah. I guess, um, I, I guess Bitcoin has also been linked to other um, uh, boom time behaviors that we've seen over the last well, 10 years or so. And John, among those is another one of your favorites. And, and, and I think something that interests all of us is 
is the levitation of Tesla. Now, that share price. <laughs> <Levitation>. <laughs> <laughs> that, that share price seems to defy all logic, and um, most people are surprised by where it has gotten and where it stayed. Mm. Do you see it that way as well? Is, tes- is Tesla the next domino to fall in in the, the crash of twenty twenty two, or is this is there something different about Tesla that stands it apart? I think Tesla's different. Yeah, um, I'm not. I'm not suggesting that we should all rush out and buy. I really don't think that. Um, mm. We've got part two of that story coming out on Friday. But if I can make, why don't I make the bull case for Tesla, and then you guys yeah. can have a crack at it. <clears throat> we so, like destroying stuff so nick that would yeah be yeah that's right no you're both very <laughs> good correct. at pulling apart ideas so so the bull case of tesla is that um the mission statement that musk came out with when he started tesla was that he wanted to radically transform the switch to renewable energy vehicles and transportation uh, so that's predicated on becoming a big a big manufacturer and key to that was it's an Apple kind of argument, which is the integration of hardware and software, which fundamentally delivers a much better user experience. So I think that's the first point to understand is that I would think about Tesla in that way as the integration of hardware and software. Traditional automobile uh, car manufacturers have just been terrible at software, absolutely appalling. And Tesla seems to have got that right. And that gives it some distinct advantages in terms of self-driving and efficiency and user experience. So I think that is something that they have established a lead in. The second point to understand is that car manufacturing has traditionally been a horizontally integrated industry. So eats part of the way from equipment suppliers to car makers to logistics companies to dealerships. Everybody takes their cut along the way. Tesla has kind of inverted that and established a vertical integration model, which allows it to deliver what seem to be industry leading industry leading profit margins. So Tesla's now making more money than you know per vehicle than um, some of the elite manufacturers like BMW and Mercedes. They're they're really doing a very very good job of that. They produced three hundred thousand vehicles last quarter, so they've made that big jump from zero to a million vehicles a year. I would suggest that is a harder a harder thing to do than to go from one to five million a year. Toyota, for example, makes about 8 million vehicles a year. So if Tesla is to make that transition, accelerate the transition to EVs, it's going to need to produce 5, 6 million vehicles a year. To me, they 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 look likely as though they could actually do that. They've integrated the supply chain as well. They've secured battery resources. They've established a great global brand. And the thing is trading, I think, on a PR of around 70 now, which is half what it was so if you can go from a million vehicles a year to two or three million vehicles a year and maintain those margins that they're currently making and theoretically they should actually increase as scale increases because there's massive economies of scale in car making that per could come down very very quickly so that's that i think is the ball case for tesla 
Nick, I'll let you go first. Where, where do you see holes in that argument, or are there any, or do you agree? I'm just going to leave now and come back in about 20 minutes, all right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I might start with governance. I think part of the ball case is Elon Musk and how, how much he's a visionary leader and um, done amazing already, as John described, upending the, the car industry. But there's another side of that too. And, I mean, this is a company that has been fined $20 million from the SEC for faking a takeover offer on Twitter. Um, it's, it's a company It's a company who uh, renamed their CFO the Master of Coin. Um, <laughs> I tell you what, he's got a good sense of humour, though, Elon, doesn't he? He does. Yeah, I, I appreciate yeah. that about him. He's a funny guy. Yeah. He does. Um, the, the other one, too, is they earn, I think John alluded to it, they earn, I think, close to 30% gross margins on their vehicles. And that's much higher than any other car company. I think double some other car companies or even triple. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah. And, and that's because they own a lot of that supply chain. Um, but mm-hmm. if someone came in and really tried to have a go at it, maybe it's too far gone now, but you could, it, it's always been a, a capital intensive industry. Um, and it's still that for Tesla. They have to spend billions of dollars rolling out these, um, I think they call them, gigafactories or these, these large factories where they produce tens of thousands of vehicles. Uh, so if you, I guess if you look at the history of some of the or um, the biggest businesses at the moment, like the Googles and Microsofts of the world, they're typically capital-like businesses. Capital-intense businesses are, are pretty hard um, and people usually come back in. Uh, whether that continues, it, it's, it's hard to know. The, the other one risk is... 25% of the sales come from China and a lot of the manufacturing yeah. comes from China now. I think about a third of the manufacturing. So there is that US-China risk because it is still a US company. It's interesting though, right? So we're not talking about um, a big blow up. We're talking about very traditional, conventional operating risks that apply to, I'd say, almost any car maker. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a different argument now than what it was, mm-hmm. um, say, five years ago, where I, where I think myself included, would have argued that Tesla was a time bomb waiting to go off. And that really hasn't been the case. And I think what everyone has missed is just how different and unique EV design and manufacture is to traditional design manufacture. You know, as a, as a car guy, I actually, um, I'm not a fan of EVs. I don't like them. I don't like driving them Um I am incredibly skeptical about the environmental benefit. Not just skeptical. I think it's actually everyone's got this wrong. No one quite appreciates how mineral intensive the batteries are. They only last for a short time, and they have to you have to replace the whole thing all over again. The ability to recycle those minerals is really difficult, and it's not clear that we have the sheer resources to to convert the entire global fleet over. Um, and then at the end of the day, after you finish driving in your boring, silent, soulless car, you go plug it into the power grid where fossil fuels recharge it. it it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it doesn't work. I don't understand why we think this is the salvation for, for climate change. If, if the problem you're confronting is there is too much pollution, there are too much um, carbon emissions, the dumb, the, the, the stupidest idea I can think of is let's just replace um, uh, emissions at the tailpipe with emissions at the generator site and put a mineral intensive, um, energy intensive um, battery in the place of a mechanical engine. It makes no sense. Why not make the cars smaller, lighter, 
and more efficient. Well, why true. not work on the why, why not work on the generation um, side um, rather than you know cleaning up the generation rather than cleaning up the, the mm. engine? It, it, we were okay. solving the wrong problem. <clears throat> but, but that being said, let me um, let me take that on. Yeah, go on, go on, John. Okay, so there's there's two things I think you raised. Firstly, Nick's yeah. point about China is absolutely correct. Yeah, um, Tesla could be could be really wrapped up in uh, a trade war in the same way that Apple can be. Yeah. Um, and that could completely stuff the gross prospects of that company. So I think we have to accept that as a risk. Um, just in terms of the governance issues, <laughs> which is basically a, you know a nice way of saying that that Elon's a nutter. Um, <laughs> I would I would say that that is a feature, not a bug. And <laughs> and I think you be you have to be kind of mad to think that you can do the kind of things that he's done, like the idea of building a rocket that goes up into the outer atmosphere and then comes back down and lands in one piece. That, that is genuinely extraordinary. Yeah. That, that, that is an astonishing thing to think that he could solve or he could build a business that solves that problem. So I think people are getting way too carried away with all this Twitter stuff. Twitter is quantifiably different in terms of programming, in terms of engineering problems. It's really not an issue at all. Twitter's problem is it's, it's users and how those users collaborate and interact on Twitter is an entirely different problem to what Telstra is trying to solve. It's an entirely different problem to SpaceX. So I don't think Musk is at all suited to solving the problems at Twitter, but I think he is suited to solving engineering based problems at SpaceX and Tesla. And you can look at all of his stuff about the kitchen sink and, you know, putting Trump back on and all of that kind of stuff. But I don't think that's the issue. I think that those two businesses that he's already established and Solar City has shown that once he's established the principles, he does actually build a workforce that is quite loyal and wants to solve those problems and will do almost anything to work on those things because they are so interesting to them and they're prepared to give him, forgive him all of his sort of personality traits that might otherwise wind people up. It was the same at Apple with Steve Jobs, who was also kind of weird. Like he spent six weeks eating carrots and his skin went orange. You know, the, 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 these tend not to be normal kind of people. They are on the edge and that's why they do this interesting stuff. So I'm prepared to give him not a pass because some of the stuff he does is quite mad, but I would, if you're thinking about investing in Tesla, which I'm not, I would, separate musk and the reporting and the stuff that he's getting involved in in twitter from the other businesses that he's doing because he's he's built a new car industry and and is producing now one million vehicles a year from nothing so that, that's the governance issues yeah there's a problem with them but i think that's part and parcel of the problems he's trying to solve now in terms of your point gaurav about <clears throat> this being the wrong way to solve emissions there's obviously a lot of truth to that. Um, there's no point plugging, well, there is a point, but it's not as good to plug, have an electric vehicle and plug it into uh, a coal-fired power station effectively. But all the machinery is there for users not to have to do that. And I never thought I'd be on a podcast where I would talk about my brother <laughs> who once flew to Stockholm to look at a set of taps. <laughs> but he is absolutely obsessive about being emissions free um he's got a load of, he lives in the uk he's got a load of solar panels on his roof and he's got two electric vehicles and he now thinks with three more panels 
he can be completely off grid, um, having done what we call the thermal upgrade on the house with a battery, with two electric cars and all these solar panels. Now you can buy all of that stuff from Tesla. You know, he, they're, they're setting up in a way where you can effectively go off grid and not use any power from the electricity network at all, just with batteries and panels. Um, and, and my brother's proof that you can do that now is not cheap to do, but the people who are buying Tesla cars are probably the audience that can do it if they want to. So I think this is a proof of concept thing. And we, we're not saying that, um, nobody's saying that, that Musk on his own is going to solve this. Nobody on their own is going to solve this issue. But the faster we get to a point where there are more electric vehicles on the road, the more likely we are to build an electricity network that is cleaner, far cleaner than what it is now, I think. Because once you get an electric car, if you're buying it for environmental reasons, you don't want to be using coal-fired power. You want other sources. So I think it creates its own demand to help with that Toyota, transition. Toyota, of course, has a, a large EV program, but they've actually been working on hydrogen cars for about 20 years. Mm. And really um, the first one, haven't they? Yeah, the Mirai. And, and uh, apparently, I mean, it gets, it gets reasonable reviews. Um, it's a completely different w approach to solving that problem. And, and I guess... Um, we haven't really seen the the traditional competition. Generally, you you, you get a, a new industry and the incumbents fight, and there's new entrants who are fighting. We haven't really seen an uh, an effective tussle in EVs. The traditional car makers, they're just they're not going to be there. It, it's not them um, because they can't get their head around um, the complete difference in design and manufacture when when it comes to EVs and and engine cars. I've seen most designs for um, for EVs, they just take their traditional platforms and instead yeah. of putting an engine in, they put a battery <laughs> under the hood, which is just yeah. pretty silly, really. It's a silly way to do it. And even but isn't, isn't even VW now, building its own? <clears throat> yeah. So even now, when um, so take VW for example, so they've they've stopped doing that and they've now got specifically designed platforms for. Um, EVs, which um, do some of the stuff that Teslas have been doing for sort of 10 years. But even then, they outsource somewhere between 80 and 40% of their software to third parties. So um, they, they're not really doing the, the software integration. They're, everyone, all, yeah. the, all the traditional auto companies are trying to hire developers and, and do the software thing, but they're, they're not doing it to the extent that Tesla has done it from the beginning. And it's not clear that they're doing it very effectively. We're, we're just starting to see the emergence of true Tesla competitors. You know, companies um, like Lucid, who yeah. um, start from the very beginning as, um, as an EV business and have fully integrated software and hardware. Those products are amazing. And, and we'll have to wait for them to sort of uh, challenge Tesla to see how durable that business really is but look i'm actually really impressed with tesla as well but I'm, I'm i'm not going to poke too many holes in it. i think how they've mastered the economics have been has been um, amazing and they've just really been really good at recognizing um mm. how to take advantage of, of a completely new technology in the way that the traditional car makers yeah. have completely missed so this is all the existing car manufacturers face now what clay christensen called the innovators dilemma the innovators right, so, dilemma that's it yeah yeah so they have to re-engineer their entire mm. thought processes 
an approach to making cars that has served them well for a hundred years. And in so doing, they have to sacrifice what they're currently making from their current, current vehicles in order to just take the risk of being a good competitor to Tesla and maybe some of the other EV companies. And there's so much, so much sort of legacy thinking in these industries that I think yeah. that you're right. They're going to, they're going to struggle to do it well. Um, but there's a, there's a kind of survival imperative, I think down the track for them as well. Yeah. It's, no, it's an interesting case study. So go ahead. What, what, what do you think of the competitive response, Nick? Do you, do you feel as though some of these companies are going to be able to make this transition? Like V-Dub seems to be doing something. Hyundai seems to be making progress as well. Mm. They're all talking about EVs. Um, is that going to crunch Tesla's margins down the track? Or do you think that maybe they've already secured their spot and now it's just a case of taking market share off everybody? I mean, potentially, I think you've sort of alluded to it too, that Apple only sell, I think, one in five smartphones right. around the world, but they take, you know, 95% profit. profit. Yeah. So you can see maybe a similar situation like that taking place. And some of Tesla's margins are, um, are their own doing. Like for all Elon Musk's governance and, and bravado, um, there's a reason they spend no sales and marketing dollars because, you know, he's always in the news, you know, yeah. trying to save you know boys in a cave in thailand um <laughs> from his living room <laughs> calling the people to actually do it pedophile yeah yeah exactly um so yeah so compared to other car companies that have billions of dollars in um in sales and marketing budgets you know tesla has nothing which is quite remarkable that they've been able to do that uh mm. but yeah it, i think one of the biggest threats and this is longer longer term and whether we can do it is um you know, a huge question, but autonomous vehicles has the, you know, it can really change the whole industry where, mm -hmm. you know, th there is a world where we don't own cars anymore because cars are 95% idle, they just sit parked yeah. and we don't need as many. Um, yeah. and, and I think Tesla's obviously, you know, touting its own autonomous um vehicle technology but there are other players in that as well i think i think that's a legitimate threat further down the track but in between i think you're going to have this sort of electric vehicle transition and it looks like they're by far and away ahead hmm. yeah i think so so one other one, one other threat though that and you, you spoke of this is that this is like it's kind of like the avi aviation industry in those early days where you, you can see that this is going to be big but you don't know in which direction it's going to travel you know you're going to have single engine aircraft you're going to have multiple engine aircraft you're going to be biplanes and one of mono winged you, you don't really know it's it's possible that tesla is kind of too early and this is where the difference with apple is the, the parallel kind of breaks down Apple likes being second or third and watching everybody else stuff it up and then come in something that actually solves that problem. Tesla has been first, and that means they have to commit to technologies that might not be the ones that we really want long-term. And hydrogen is a good example of that. Even, even the very specific battery, battery technologies, I mean, the chemistry mm -hmm. is always changing and evolving, and it's not clear which battery chemistry is going to take the lead. Um, but they've already they've sunk capital in these gigafactories, and 
um, they're stuck. Like if the battery chemistry evolves and gets better, they're, they're, they're stuck right. with the technology path they've gone that's down. That's right. I think that's, that's, that's right. a risk for them as well. Yeah. But yeah. Look, that's, in order um, to that's... establish... Sorry, go on, John. Go on. Go on well, just, in, in, <laughs> well yeah. in order to, to make the future, you have to commit to some to commit. kind of technology. Yeah. You have to commit. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to get mm-hmm. to a million cars a year. But in so doing, because you're so early into it, um, it, it potentially closes off other avenues that might be more successful for the industry at large. Yeah. Yeah. Um, let's close off Tesla, actually, at that point. We've had a, a big conversation. We better talk about some some Aussie stocks. Um, but, John, looking forward to that part two. That's coming out um, this week. Is that right? So, yeah, on Friday. Hear this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it should be up by Friday. Nice one. Okay. <laughs> Um, Nick, let's go to you for a moment. You've um, picked up some of the businesses on the ASX. You know, as the last one through the door at II, you've been stuck with the companies that are too complicated or too hard <laughs> or too, or too uninteresting expensive. or too expensive for the rest of us to take a look at. Um, but that's actually saddled you with some really interesting stocks and you've started writing them up. I was particularly interested in Goodman Group, which is the company that I feel as though we have missed over the years it's been um no, i think that's phenomenal. understating it <laughs> it is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be understated here john <laughs> um not only has it done really well in terms of share price but the way that business has been built out the way it's run um the way it dominates its uh its niche certainly in australia it has all the hallmarks of a business that we generally like to get to know and we want to invest in after taking a close look at it, um, do you agree? Is this the sort of business that we we want to take a more active interest in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've kicked off with a hold recommendation. I think the business quality is almost unquestionable. They've, they've done a really good job out of the GFC where they almost um, they almost did go broke. They've reduced debt um, on the balance sheet and really transitioned the model to less of a real estate investment trust and more towards a, a global fund manager or even private equity like business mm. uh, focusing on industrial property. Can, you, been, can you just let's just yeah. break down the business model because I think this is <laughs> this is quite unique and confusing. It's not it's classified as a REIT, mm. but as you say, it's not really a REIT, it's more of a fund manager. Just explain to us how a REIT morphs into a fund manager. What are these activities that that um, Goodman does and, and how does it make so much money? Yeah, so there's so there's three prongs to the model. So there's rental income, which is this new traditional real estate investment trust, earning money from properties, um, earning rent from tenants. Then there's uh, fund management and development, and they're sort of in the same boat together. And so what Goodman does is they'll put up typically one-fifth of the capital and go to uh, big overseas, generally, um, pension funds like the Canadian Pension Board. Um, There's a Chinese pension fund as well involved and create these partnerships in each geography and go and buy logistics properties or industrial properties. And then they'll charge the partnership uh, management fee, the same as you know, and Magellan would earn a management fee. They'll charge the um, partnership performance fees on any um, outperformance above agreed upon benchmark, which are mainly kept private. Um, for example, 
the New Zealand um, partnership is the only one that's listed. So their their hurdle rate or their performance fee that they've got to beat is the the New Zealand um, REIT index, essentially, or property index. And then they'll go and use the capital that partners provide to not only buy properties, but buy land and develop it. Um, or they'll dispose of assets. It's this entire model around industrial property and they sort of take a clip in every little corner. So if they're developing a project, they'll charge the partnership a project management fee. They'll take um, a fee on any excess returns they might earn. So there's very similar to Macquarie. There's just fees on fees on fees throughout these partnerships. And, and there's been a, um, a huge, huge desire for the, for the capital to find um, more investment in property over the last, I guess, decade with interest rates going so low that you know, the Canadian pension fund's got to meet uh, requirements um, and they've got to find returns somewhere and industrial property's been, been a huge winner, um, as is all property, but where Goodman focuses a lot is industrial. It's almost entirely industrial. So compared to office and and retail, which has maybe suffered over the last, particularly since COVID, industrial has taken off because the demand's mainly coming from e-commerce players that need to be in sort of consumer-centric locations in major cities close to the consumer. One thing I've never really got my head around, Nick, is just the extent of the fees. And, and you mentioned Macquarie. And I th- I'd, I'd say that's another business that's always surprised me. Just how much fees they can extract from a deal is is that it has been sustainable for Macquarie? Is it sustainable for Goodman? Do you think their partners are always going to be willing to pay those fees because the developments are that profitable? Well, I think that's it. I mean, the, these partnerships have been earning fifteen to twenty percent returns now. Jeez, a lot of really, yeah, <laughs> and for for a number of years. So at the moment, they are happy um, to pay it, but. It's one thing I think we mentioned the article too um, that can turn, particularly in a recession like it did in the GFC, is that development profits can really fall because they just don't um, they just don't complete as much uh, work. They they don't complete uh, they don't start any new projects, so the work in progress falls. And developments now make up fifty percent of the profits. So that's the that's probably why we're not a buy on the stock is because that number can really fall if if things get tight. John, did you want to say something? I've got a question about, I mean, I, I don't know much about Goodman, um, but it just seems to be extraordinary the amount of money it can make for what it really does. Is it that hard to build big boxes? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, where's the skill in that? There's a little bit of skill. Or is it all just financial engineering? Oh, there is some financial engineering as well. Two of the things um, Goodman have that, I guess a lot of other uh, managers around the world don't have is one, they have a global presence. So a lot of these, a lot of the competitors are more local, even um, uh, uh, ProLogis in the US is mainly a US um, business with partnerships in the US. They do have some outside, but Goodman are one of the only companies that actually specialize in industrial property and have done for two decades in almost every continent on earth apart from apart from Africa. And so the feature to these big pension funds is they can go to just one manager and get global exposure. The second feature, again, it's not that no one else can do this, but they've been uh, really good at designing properties. So I think in the article we had the Interlink property in Hong Kong, which is 24 stories, 15 stories is um, 
accessible by by trucks and it's not that no one else can do this but there, there seem to be actually a bit of ip in that design work um and they've also been ahead of the game in providing uh or developing environmentally friendly buildings and buildings are one of the main um contributors to emissions so tenants like uh amazon which is i think eight percent of of income uh really really want that because they've got their own esg aims that they need to hit or um, they've you know, mentioned them in their annual reports before net zero by a certain year and their building footprints are, are, are a big part of that. So they're, they're probably the two things I'd say that Goodman has done better than the competition, but it's not that um, no one else can do this. They've just been the best. And then the other one is just the returns, which have just been yeah, outstanding. So there's no really reason to leave at the moment. It reminds me a little bit, I guess, of, of Westfield um, in the sense that anyone can build a, a shopping centre. It's not impossible, but they did it a little bit better. And, and because they did it a little bit better, the rewards they got were a lot, lot better. And I think that's the true that that's true in this industry as well. That a little bit of uh, improvement can lead to drastically outscaled um, outperformance as well. Mm. Um, I'm familiar with Goodman because they're a joint venture partner for a business I, I cover, Brickworks. And um, and Brickworks Management is is constantly singing the praises of, of Goodman, saying that um, the location of the properties is really, really important because uh, when you have a, a logistics, essentially a logistics warehouse, um, it has to straddle main roads. It has to be close to customers. Um, being close to port and rail is also really important as well. And there's only a limited supply of that sort of property. And once you build up um, a, a handful of warehouses, all the trucks and all the logistics already lead to that area. So you end up sort of creating your own network. Um, and I think being early and then locking up a lot of good property and, and owning those networks already is a huge advantage for, for good. And it makes it much, much harder for someone else to come in and try and compete. Yeah, that's, that's um, yeah, I guess that's all correct. The, the other one I would say, probably going back to the previous question, is they also have long dated capital, which is a real difference compared to Magellan, let's say. So the Canadian, because it's property and it's a liquid, let's say the Canadian Pension Board, they can't just sell all their stakes tomorrow. This is locked in for several years. And so essentially by locking in these partners, they just, the assets grow, um, they just build and they've got pre-commitments just like private equity has pre-commitments from um, capital partners. So they have a, you know, a contract that they need to contribute um, X, Y, Z each year. And that sort of this continues to grow. And then, over time, particularly where interest rates fall, valuations go up. So it's like just feeds into this whole model and then they allocate more money because that's where the returns are. And that's pretty much what's happened um, since the GFC. And, and they have had, as you say, they have had a lot of these um, properties in the best locations. They've also de-risked the balance sheet by selling all the worst properties, all the worst properties they held on, held on their balance sheet, they've just got rid of and really focusing on just the the properties with the best logistics um, networks and the best access to roads, ports, infrastructure, um, as you said. There was um, sorry, go on, John. There was um, a friend of mine who works in in industrial property, saying that <clears throat> that your point about the um, the locations that Goodman has got is <clears throat> is pretty accurate, and that a lot of the 
the increase in the cap rate um, and that effect on valuation is being offset by rental growth because they do own all of the best, not all of them, but the, the best properties. And if you're looking at, at land that is close to the customer, you're normally looking at inner city land normally or, 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 or uh, land that's in short supply. And a lot of that has already gone in many of the major yeah. cities and, and you end up building 16 story warehouses in Hong Kong <laughs> <laughs> and there's only so many of those that you can do. So they do seem to have carved out a niche for themselves where these high value urban locations are really desired by tenants. Just to play devil's advocate for, for a second. I mean, we're all the three of us, I think are in agreement that this is a high quality business. It's one we're interested in, but Another way of approaching Goodman is to consider that a lot of its success came post the GFC in an environment where interest rates have collapsed. They've been zero for 10 years, unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And in that environment, if a property business can't make bucket loads of money, especially one with huge development profits, um, there's something wrong. So, um, you know, I, I think we ought to be a bit more cautious Oh, we, we can be. It's an argument to be a bit more cautious in a rising rate environment where that development pool is potentially smaller or less profitable. And the business gets tested in a way that really hasn't been tested over the last um, 10 or even 15 years. Nick, is, is that probably a bit harsh? No, I think that's um, 100% right. I mean, if you look at it compared to just a typical real estate investment trust, the valuations that come through all the revaluations that have yeah. come through are just an accounting sort of metric. Yeah. It, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't come through in cash flow. But this is different with Goodman. So when you when a partnership revalues a property, they charge an asset management fee of about 75 basis points based on that revalued value. So if if it goes down, if it goes the other way, um, then the assets under management falls and the actual earnings for Goodman fall as well, the actual cash earnings. And the same with mm -hmm. the development business. So over the last 10 years or since uh, 2011, they started with 12 billion assets under management. It's now, I think it's close to 80 billion. Um, but if you just take the 70 billion that they had under management um, at the end of um, last financial year, about half of that gain or a little bit over half that gain has come from revaluation property. So, yeah. which is capitalization rates falling from anywhere from 9% to 4% what they are today. So a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, uh, Goodman's gains have come from the revaluation of property and the earnings that have flowed through. And then on top of that, they've just been in the best, um, area of property, which has been industrial property because e-commerce has taken off over the last decade. So they've definitely benefited. And importantly, the income statement, cash flow statement, as well as the balance sheets benefited. It's not just a revaluation like a typical real estate investment trust. I think you've talked about it before with Brickworks that they say, yeah. oh, those profits may reverse at some stage. Yeah, completely yeah. different. This is that, that's probably the single most important point to understand about the business and, and you're right brickworks is a great example because the management who i really rate at brickworks they have all the way throughout the boom they gave warning that look we got these revaluations coming through they're not real profits we don't count them as real profits and they said that as the asset prices were rising and they're saying the same things now as our asset prices are falling they're saying that look these are not those weren't real profits um they didn't benefit us and so they're not going to hurt us on the way down and and i i completely agree with that i think that's true that's accounting treatment 
um, affecting um, the bottom line. But your points were made. Um, Goodman is completely different. You've actually got real cash flows coming from that accounting treatment. So things are going to get really nasty um, if um, if the you know if, if they can't compensate for for, for that lack of um, that, that falling thumb. If they can't do something to offset that, then yeah, and profits John, are going to fall. John's point um, about his made in industrial property is absolutely correct as well. Even though uh, most people expect capitalization rates to rise, so from four percent to maybe five or six. Mm. Um, rental growth in their properties is offsetting a lot of that valuation um, right, fall. Right. Okay. So some of their properties in the US, Goodman have said they're 40% under-rented or they can wow. increase rents about 40%. Um, so yeah, the, the two main inputs in valuation for them are the actual capitalization rate and the, the rental levels. So there should be some offset, even if capitalization rates um, do fall. Or that's rise, why the, I should say. That's so why when they, so they have this... Yeah, I mean the the valuation is is so difficult, and the reason I think we haven't upgraded, I don't think anyone on the, on the team actually owns Goodman, is because you have to you have these two very powerful forces working in um, opposing directions, and we don't really know which way this is going to land. It it could be potentially very bad, or it could be quite favourable. So yeah, it's it's just hard. What's the disaster scenario for this business, Nick? I think the disaster scenario is legitimately what happened in the GFC. You come in over leveraged mm. into a massive property bubble and they had the issue of one fine rights issue at 40 cents to save the business. Um, yeah. the, the stock absolute collapsed. Uh, I think it fell 95% plus. That, that's the disaster mm-hmm. scenario. I think in this case, unless we get some, you know, extremely high interest rate, which there'll be, many disasters in that case um, that that's off the table this time, just because of the balance sheet's been repaired. It used to be about 50% yeah. debt to equity. It's now 8%. If you include the partnership, <laughs> if you include wow. the partnership stakes, it's about 19%. So it's just a different ball game um, in terms of how leveraged they are. The, so the, probably the worst scenario I can envision is just those development product uh, profits really, really fall. Um, and then some of the valuations. So I think the rental side of the business, they've got 99% occupancy. The rental side of the business, which is about 25% of earnings, should continue to grow earnings. I mean, I don't think Amazon's pulling out of um, any warehouses they've got just yet. Um, and most of the other customers are big, like Australia Post-like um, industrial businesses or logistics businesses. So yeah, it'd be this on the development side of earnings and potentially the assets under management um, or the farm side of earnings as well. The fact that there's a founder there just provides so much comfort, doesn't it? And a founder that's actually shown, shown himself to be quite sensible. Yeah, absolutely. And the, I mean, it's not just the founder. So the founder owns Greg Goldman. He owns, I think, a stake worth about $800 million. But all the major, um, all the senior executives own stock. They've all been there. I think the, the six people they have in their key management personnel report in the annual report, um, they, they've been there for 10 or 15 years plus, all of them. Um, the, the business had 6% employee turnover last year, which is wow. extraordinarily low. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's a, it's a culture that, you know, he's built from the top and it, it goes all the way through and most people own shares in the business that, that work for them. Nick, I've got an uncomfortable question for you. Um, so we, we clearly missed this. <laughs> but why do you think we missed it? 
That is an uncomfortable question. <laughs> so I think Nathan yeah. was the analyst for most of it. Yeah, yeah, um, he was. But but uh, I just wonder whether because of the experience that we collectively went through Goodman with stopped us from seeing what it became after that catastrophic event. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, that's part of it for sure. I think, I think the other thing to, to really envision back then what Goodman is today, you would have had to predict that e-commerce was going to be as big as it is today, which a lot of people mm. didn't. I mean, we take it for granted how big Amazon is or something like that today, but a lot of people didn't predict that in maybe 2010, 2011. But the other thing you had to predict was that capitalization rates were going to fall from 9% to 4% and interest rates were going to yeah. be zero, um, yeah. like at a central bank level. So, the, so all those things have helped not only property companies, but in particular Goodman Group, um, because of the things we spoke about before of the revaluations and that sort of thing. So I think it was pretty hard to see. It, maybe maybe the thing was just to back Greg Goodman and that they they still kept a lot of the partnership um, assets under management. The tenants, um, the actual occupancy of the buildings never, I think, fell below 94 or 93%. So the buildings were occupied. So there was, there was a mm-hmm. legit business underneath, but... There was risk back then too that they need to deleverage the balance sheet. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and they, I guess, they did quite aggressively. I yeah. think you're being quite kind there, Nick. I think it was. I think we're all aware that that the um, the shopping thing was taken off, and mm-hmm. I think I think John's point is is, is quite right. I mean, uh, we saw this thing go almost bust, and to to back it after watching it at fall ninety five percent is really hard. I actually had a similar experience with Linus. Um, you know, Linus, the rare earth miner, used to be um, a basket case, an absolute basket case, um, were poorly managed and they couldn't get the, the chemistry right. And I saw that thing struggle and almost go under multiple times. And when new management came in and sorted that business out, I, I was very late to see it um, because mm-hmm. I was scarred by what I'd seen about the business earlier. It just leaves you with this lingering skepticism. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone minds being wrong um, in this industry. I mean, we're all wrong sometimes. It doesn't bother me one bit. But to be wrong no. on the same stock, <laughs> that would be, that would hurt. And, and I think we're trying to avoid that a lot. Well, wrong on the same stock twice. Twice. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> That's hard. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because there's, there's this argument for experience, which I, yeah. I, I fully support. But there is a way that experience also takes your view, you know, the way that history forces you to see things in a particular way or suggests that you see things in a particular way when um, the future might look very different from the past. It's just hard to see. No, completely agree. Hey, listen, we better uh, move on from this and, and quickly finish up on our last um, segment, which um, which actually just wanted to have a, a quick word about AGMs, which for the first time I've been attending um, more regularly this year, made a lot, a huge effort to get to a lot of AGMs, or at least mm-hmm. listen to them and read the transcripts um, after the fact. I thought you put on a bit of weight. <laughs> All those sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> it is tempting. Well, it's, it's actually great. I used to think, oh, what a waste, you know, all these sandwiches and just go for the food. But you're sitting there for an hour and a half or two hours. Uh, the sandwiches are just a delight when they come out afterwards. It's so nice. 
Yeah. And some companies um, bring out some really good stuff. New Hope, which I expected to be really stingy and bring out nothing and maybe a bit of chips. I mean, I actually bought my lunch beforehand because I was like, I, I was telling the guys that New Hope's not going to provide any lunch. It's not going to give you anything to eat. This is this is the, the milliners. Come on. And they'd come on, their, 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 their food spread. and beverage budget must be pretty awesome nowadays. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. They had a great spread and it was very good. But look, my, my point is really, um, I wanted to get your ideas about this as well. Um, I credit uh, my, my friend uh, Greg Hoffman for, for getting me to more AGMs. He's been saying for quite some time that that if you go to one, you might not get that much out of it. But if you start going to several, you start recognizing things and you start seeing things that, you don't always get to see. Um, and it's mm. the only time we get unguarded access to management. You know, when you, when you, when you ring up a management as an analyst and you want to have a chat, I find that completely useless because they're on, they know exactly they're on script and they don't help you out. Yeah. But over a sandwich at an AGM when you're wearing jeans, that can be different. Is that your experience as well, John? Maybe um, you go first. Is, are you uh, there was one, in there was a, there was the one that I remember from AGMs is uh, is it was actually Greg at Brambles, and <laughs> Brambles had lost. Um, I don't know how many pallets it was, but it was a lot, and it impacted their results. And they were denying mm. that they'd lost them. They said, "We just don't know where they are, but there are they are somewhere, right? But they're not lost." And and I think Greg went up and had a chat with the the CEO or the chair at the time who would, he said, you, of course they're effing lost, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so there was this public and personal uh, persona that were, mm. were quite different and he just couldn't bring himself to come out and say what everybody knew mm. because that wasn't the company line. So you do get instances like that. I think for me, and I was hoping to go to the LaVisa AGM last week, but uh, mm. yeah, I was bloody sick, but the, often you see the dynamic between the management teams um, in real life, how they interact, mm. how often they interrupt each other, who yeah. uses I a lot. Do they use, do they talk in the we, the collective or the, the singular, um, you know, is the CFO sitting there sort of cowering before the CEO worried that, yeah. you know, he's going to say something out of place or that the kind of relationship stuff. between the, um, the chairman and the management, the board and yeah. the management, you get to see that relationship, which is crucial. Absolutely crucial. That's right. And that's, that's the right. only time you'll see that. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Go on, so the, well, it's just, the, this is the soft side of analysis. You know, in most cases, it's probably not that pertinent. Um, but you know, there are situations where, especially in growing businesses where the management, I think is, you know, really critical, um, they're not just sort of custodians of a, a monopoly asset. They're, they're actually trying to build something. That mm. dynamic between the various members of the management team is really, really important. And you only really get to see that um, face-to-face to AGM. So I think that in itself is a good reason to go. Nick, what about you? Yeah, I haven't, I haven't been to a lot, but I think your point on finding them or getting management and the ball when they're unguarded is um, – yeah, it's extremely important. I mean, you can sit in front of your computer and read the transcripts from an AGM, but it's not the same as going and actually meeting these people face-to-face. And that that dynamic between the board and, um, and management is another good point. I mean, how many boards have we seen over the years that just don't care? Like, mm-hmm. you've seen it with AMP. Um, and then you've seen, you know, as you said, with like New Hope and all these companies, Levis is a, another good one that the board actually cares. They're invested as well a lot of the time, particularly a lot of the time the chairman. Um, 
and and how they incentivize management is another big one because a lot of the times the the board really I think just doesn't care they're just there to get a paycheck. I think you it, it's for me what I realize it's a good chance to to understand the people running the business and I mean, I'm not pretending I can read their body language or or get to know them after you know a 30 minute chat but um, you do pick up bits and pieces. So an example from from um, the New Hope meeting, um, you know, we went over um, a, a group of uh, friends, and, and I went over before um, uh, to Muscle Musclebrook. We're having dinner at, at the Muscle at a, at a pub in Musclebrook, and the entire New Hope um, executive team and, um, and and a bunch of other people were, were at the pub, and they were having dinner as well. And so we were just kind of had, watching had them. been for the last three days, probably. <laughs> 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 it's a small town. We bumped into the same people so many times over the course of a couple of days. It was it was quite funny. Um, what a, a random lady just came up to me and said, "Geez, we're seeing you boys everywhere. Where are you going? Why are you following me around?" It's just a small place, and we're, we're walking around, and we just keep on bumping into the same people. But what we what I noticed was that um, you know, uh, Milner, uh, Rob Milner, his son, and the CEO and the CFO, and the four most senior people in that business were the last ones to leave that night when everyone else had gone. And those four individuals cleaned up after themselves. They they bought all the plates and, and everything up, big armfuls of everything, and brought it to um, the, the counter and had a chat to the people who were at the pub. They clearly knew each other reasonably well. And, um, you know, the, this is a billionaire, a, a bona fide billionaire cleaning them up after himself and, Having a, a chat to the to the star, like I, it's 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 probably not a big deal, but it tells you, um, you know, the, the fact that he cleans up after himself makes me feel a bit better about him operating a mine and, and cleaning up after himself on, on the mine site. What would that say about yeah? What would that say about rehabilitation of their mine sites? Like, could you mm. make the argument that their rehabilitation is better than anybody else's in the industry? It is. Uh, look, I think it's a long bow to to link mm-hmm. those two together, but it gives you an insight into kind of people uh, who are running that business. And it's no coincidence, I would say, that your point is 100% correct. New Hope actually has maybe the best record of, of mine rehabilitation in all of Australian mining. Um, they've re- rehabilitated um, several coal sites, and now they're actually running operating farms on those sites, and they own cattle on the former mine site. And when you see pictures of, I've never gone in person to see the rehabilitated site, something I want to do one day, but pictures of it, it, you would never know there was a mine there. It just looks just like a farm. And there are very few miners who leave the ground untouched the way New Hope do. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the sort of people who clean up after themselves and and, uh, and you know, um, think of their own, own identity um, with humility, that do that mm. in their professional life as well. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. Go to the go to the AGM and and, and get to the pub. I think that's the that's the lesson from today's um, <laughs> podcast. That, that sounds like a full life to me. <laughs> that does, that's the AGM pub. It was the meaning of life right there. <laughs> um, listen, we better get some other stuff done as well. Um, it was nice chatting to both of you, um, Nick. Uh, great to have you today. We're going to have to grab you on for some other stocks as well. So don't. Don't go too far. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. And John, huge treat to have you. We don't get to speak to you um, often enough, but I'm really glad for your time today. Thanks. That's good. I really enjoyed it. And uh, enjoy the game tomorrow, Nick.
Oh yeah, thank you. Well, the soccer stuff, goodness <laughs> me. All right, for everyone else, despite the soccer, thanks for listening. All right, see ya.